I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. Hello, I'm recording this episode on January 16th in my stepbrother's closet in Montclair, New Jersey. I just got a COVID test after traveling from Phoenix, Arizona, which was negative. Uh, this week, the president was impeached again, and he's impeached, been impeached the same number of times I've been cheated on. Um, <laughs> today, I am joined by my friend Jonathan. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, I've never been cheated on, so that's good for me. <laughs> I'm so sorry to nice? hear that. I, I just thought, because that was like a tweet I was going to put out. Like, mm. he's been impeached the same number of times I've been cheated on. But then mm. I was worried people were going to be like, Jess, like, there's an impeachment. People are dying. Like, we don't care that you've been cheated on. Yeah. more likely you would have received an outpouring of support. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. But I also was like, why am I making the impeachment about me? You know? <laughs> why do I have to do that all the time? Um. So, wait, Jonathan, how do we know each other? Uh technically from school but also from did Twitter. we ever meet at school you know that's that's the question of the hour isn't it i think <laughs> i think we maybe our paths definitely crossed i definitely like i don't often, think we were ever in classes together though i don't think we were ever in a class together but i absolutely from like freshman year knew your name saw the face was like oh that's jess Right, and then, similar yeah. to you. Oh, that's Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I probably saw you existing in space like two, three times per week. Oh, that's nice. You seemed really <laughs> nice always. You too. <laughs> but, we should um, have been friends. Wait, what studio were you in? I was in Adler. You were in Adler. Uh, I think yeah. we just rotated in different circles, that's all. Wait, yeah. were you friends with Carly? Carly Messick? Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I was friends with Carly Messig, so that's could have been some something. Okay, so we should blame Carly Messig. Okay, we're blaming Carly Messig for us not being friends. I think you that's hear fair. that, Carly. I hope you're you listening. You hear that, Carly? Carly, I hope you're listening, and I hope you feel awful. I hope you feel bad. Um, where did you grow up, and where do you live now? So I grew up the first like nine years of my life in very far northern uh, Indiana, uh-huh. uh, and then moved where, from there. What was what was like the town? Called. It was a t- oh, this is interesting. I just remembered this. It's uh, South Bend, Mayor Pete. You grew up in South Bend? Yeah, 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 yeah. No uh, way. Which is something I forget about all the time. Uh, That's so funny. But you did not live there when it was Mayor Pete. No, I believe when I lived there, Mayor Pete was, I'm going to guess, 15. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so wait, in South Bend, that is where, uh, what is that college? Notre Dame, right? Yes. I was like five minutes from Notre Dame. No way. Um, I was in South Bend, Mm -hmm. um, on Halloween in 2019. Um, I have to ask why. Because I was on tour. Oh, okay. I performed in South Bend, I think, or it may have been a a weekend stopover situation. But sure. um, I went to a, a bar that was having karaoke. I will have to find out what bar that was that I was in South Bend with my castmates performing karaoke. Um, South Bend was nice. When you is it is when you found out there was like a gay mayor, were you like surprised having grown up there? Did you um, freeze? You froze. I froze. Well, I was. Everybody's freezing. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I was. <laughs> okay. I would think I was mostly surprised just in context of knowing that Mike Pence was the governor. 
Um, and so oh. that seemed like a weird pairing. I mean, not not. I don't think he was the governor at all while I lived there. Um, but just like knowing that the same place that has Mike Pence as governor also has Mayor Pete Buttigieg is kind of confusing. Right. Um, huh. But to be honest, I don't think I. I mean, I again moved out when I was nine, so I don't think I had. Uh, okay. So where did you very, move? I moved to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma um, City. Yes, which I'm actually a big fan of. I love Oklahoma City a lot. I'm in Oklahoma City right now. Um, uh-huh. And that's really the place I identify more as uh, home. Because I think when you're nine, uh, you don't go a lot of places also. Right. Uh, you just go where your parents bring you to. And then right. when, you're, when you get older, you it, life is more of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Uh, and it was honestly, it it was a really, really great, like lively artistic, but like, uh, manageably sized place to grow up. Like it, it never felt, uh, overwhelming at all, but it also never felt, um, like I was wanting for any kind of activity. Oh, that's cool. Um, I don't know if, I don't think I've ever been to Oklahoma city, but I did drive through Oklahoma on my drive from New York city to Arizona. Um, and what I found in Oklahoma was a lot of flat a lot yes of... <laughs> that's correct keep going see, see if you can bring some more bells for me uh i saw some windmills there um i saw uh-huh. some cows that was pretty much my oklahoma experience well okay mind you the you know the midwestern i would i wouldn't call oklahoma midwestern experience but i would just say middle middle country experience southern experience my mom's from mm. nebraska like so Ooh. so the land of flat and cows and windmills i'm like yeah no, i'm familiar like <laughs> yeah i i like it i'm on board with a great big wide open space huh i love it Did, so had you been to the east coast many times before you went to nyu no i had uh actually i my first time on a plane was when i flew to visit nyu uh, my junior no year of high school yeah yeah wow. yeah so i was very excited about that uh and yeah i just uh i went with my dad for like a four or five day trip my senior uh, my junior year mm. of high school and just to uh like meet some people at nyu and get a sense of if like i actually liked new york city and like want to live there and be there and like study there and stuff right um turns out i did in fact like it so where else did you apply for well theater? Truth be told, uh, nowhere. I only oh. ever applied to NYU. Um, wow, that's but cool. But the, the, the reasoning behind that was that uh, I knew that I really wanted to go to New York at that point and study there and stuff. And I wasn't, I, thought, I knew that I loved acting, but I also liked writing. Uh, so I wasn't a thousand percent sold on acting as the thing I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's um, funny that they didn't put you in playwrights then. I know we'll we'll get there because I'm I was I uh, actually like wanted to be put in playwrights. Um, That's so funny. I'm, I'm very glad uh, that I wasn't not because like playwrights is bad or anything, but just because I ended up loving. Uh, Adler. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just want to burn you real quick and say glad I didn't do what you did. Um, <laughs> no, I, I ended up really loving Adler. Uh, but so because I was applying early decision to NYU, there's, you know, that month long gap. So I was like, oh, well, if slash when they don't take me, 
uh, I'll have time to get other applications together. And oh, weirdly, sure. all of the other applications I was going to send out were for like English majors or yeah, like creative yeah. writing majors, stuff like that. It was literally NYU was the only school that I was ever going to apply uh, to be a drama major at. Mm-hmm. I had a similar vibe of like, I was like, which I don't really like that mentality now that I'm older of like the best theater schools are bust. Like it was like, I go, mm-hmm. I go to the best theater school period or I major in education or I major in political science. Like, um, mm-hmm. cause I didn't get into Mason Gross or uh, Fordham or BU. I was waitlisted for you. And so I was like almost committed to GW for political science. And then I got into Tish mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't know. I kind of like nowadays I'm like, oh, maybe I could have just if I didn't get into NYU, I could have studied theater somewhere else, too. But I was just in this weird place where I was going to let my college decision decide what I was going to do with my life. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. And I think that looking back on it, it was less it was way less about like the program itself. I think it was knowing what I ended up moving into in college and what I ended up doing for work now. It was almost some kind of subconscious bargaining, I think, where like maybe I wanted to do writing, but like NYU acting program just seemed like so prestigious that it was almost mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you you have to. And if they if they take you like you have to, you can't. That was such a vibe. All my teachers were like, you have to go. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean you're not thinking about it? You have to go. Yeah, isn't that fun <laughs> pressure in academia? And I was like, oh yeah, no, you're t- yeah, of, co- of course, of course, I I have to go. I remember one teacher in specific said, well, you have to go. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's it. Um, what was I going to say? What do you do now? So what ended up happening was that after like six months at NYU, uh, I loved the acting program, but I like deeply missed writing. So mm-hmm. in like January of my freshman year, I was like, oh, I've. I can't only do this for four years. I really want to write and do playwriting and screenwriting and TV writing and stuff. Um, so I ended up applying for a double major in the dramatic writing department. I did uh, not know that. Yeah, surprise. Uh, <laughs> so I applied for a dramatic writing double major and they, uh, which uh, turned out wasn't a thing. Like they weren't really prepared to do it. Uh-huh. Um, so it was a very... Uh, they accepted me, which I'm very grateful for. I'm also very grateful for uh, my parents are always extremely supportive at all times uh, and were always wanting me to like pursue like what I loved. So uh, it was actually my dad that I was on the phone with who was like, you know, it really sounds like this is important to you. You should pursue that. Like, it's okay that you thought you were going there for something else, but like follow your heart, like follow what you want to do. Nice. Um, yeah, I feel very fortunate. Uh, I love both my parents very much. Um, but it it, uh, it was it was exhausting trying to put together the double major and get out in time. It was um, me and uh, another girl who were there. She was in the same year as I was, and we were apparently like the guinea pigs for trying to like who was craft. It? Uh, it was really, but it, it was me and this other person uh, were like in the same place like really just dying on the daily being like are you doing okay because this is exhausting uh, so hopefully <laughs> oh, it's gotten man. easier for people uh after us uh so i did that um tacked on a psych minor at some point and a then cans minor or a psych minor no just a purely uh, psych minor oh really huh. i had a uh, cans minor 
I, I love everybody Cam's who got a child and adolescent mental health studies. It was because it was so easy to get one. That's why I got the psych one is because ah. just the classes that I wanted to take, my advisor was like, are you getting a psych minor? And I was like, no, it's too much work. And she was like, you took three of the four <laughs> classes you In need. Fact, and I was like, oh, no okay, work. then yeah. <laughs> Um, and so then now I fully, by like a halfway through school, I kind of fully transitioned to writing. Mm. Uh, and I still finished out my drama major and everything. Um, but like I was producing shows and, and writing shows and building up body of work and all that kind of stuff. And so then now I fully uh, just work as a writer. Oh, cool. You cur- you're currently working? Yeah, I mean the same the same place as you are, where where you're doing your best <laughs> to get yeah, money. Yeah, like before we started recording, I said there's a lot of things shaking and moving. It would be really nice if I had enough money to like live my life while these things were happening, or if they were all yeah 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 yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm doing I'm doing okay, but it, it's a slow it's a slow climb to glory. Are you are you living with your parents right now? I am not. I actually uh, my parents moved to uh, Kansas City about a year oh, really? ago, Kansas and I City just. Mo- uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never been there. Um, <laughs> you've never been to Kansas City, Kansas? You've only been to Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri? Okay. Have you been to Kansas City, Missouri, or have you never been to any kind of Kansas I've City? I've been to Kansas City, Missouri. I love that. It was another show that I, another city that I toured in. Um, okay, so it. then you're pretty familiar with Kansas City, Kansas, though. Oh, it's very similar? Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> I think it's the same as how I feel. It's the same. I remember the barbecue was dank as hell, and um, yeah, the we went to a jazz club, which was just delicious. Ooh, yeah, yeah, I love. I think Kansas City uh, is a great town. Um, but then after, as I was leaving uh, NYU, I was just like exhausted of New York and knew that I wanted to head out to uh, LA and stuff like that. And it was just like I needed uh, space to like be productive and write yeah, and work. Totally. And I, figured that I could, you know, work remotely and travel when I need to, at least for the time being. Well, that's what I'm up uh, to. So so. I, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's been really, really uh, lovely and great. So I've just been, I got a, I got an apartment here and I've just been working from Oklahoma City for right now. Oh it's yeah, that's great. Oh, I, I didn't realize that. That's really cool. Okay, let's, let's talk, let's get into some, some nitty gritty. Um, so what was the title of this essay? So the title of this essay was Seeing is Doing, mm. The Illusion of Potential Participation, oh. which I thought was a very good title. I, I completely agree. I think that's a fantastic title. What class was this one for? It was for drama and performance. Okay. So that was just like, was, uh, it, was it a theater studies? Yeah, it was a theater studies. And it was, I believe, uh, really hard to get into. It wasn't like special to get into it. It was just like... You had to be lucky enough to be early on the uh-huh. order for like when you're allowed to sign up for things. Um, where basically you just would come together as a class and you met twice a week and you would as a class go see the same show together mm-hmm. on like a Wednesday night and then you'd come into class on Monday and you'd all talk about it. Yeah. Those those classes were freaking awesome. Like I They were amazing. Yeah. Um I was I never got into one of those classes because it was such a so difficult to get into. But my last class at NYU was a J term theater studies where it was like we would go see a show. We would 
Yeah, we mm-hmm. would discuss. I saw the jungle at uh, St. Anne's Warehouse. I saw that looked so. Oh my good, god, it was to go so it. good. And um, the like, I I know I'm going to talk about Broken Bone Bathtub and um, uh, Shivana Laughlin, who d- did Broken Bone Bathtub, came and talked to my class, mm-hmm. and we saw a lot of cool shit. Um, I think those classes are really beneficial. Like you, you have I to are too. Yeah. engage with the material instead of just reading about it. Like theater is meant to be seen. Um, well, it's also the fact that you're actually, I was definitely exposed to so much theater. I never would have ever seen. And I mean, we right. saw like probably, tw- I'm going to guess maybe like 12 shows over the course That's of so the cool. semester. Did you see any screwball shows while you were in that class? Yeah, uh, yes, we saw at least one that was like touring through Skirball. Um, Do you remember what it was? That, I don't remember the title of it, but it was a documentary. If I'm remembering correctly, it was a documentary theater piece about the Israel-Palestine Yeah, conflict. that was, um, oh, shoot. The, the Tower, the Citadel? No. Maybe I'm fully making up. No, I'm going to find it. Like the, the reason I ask is because during that time, I was the marketing, I was the digital marketing specialist for Skirball. Um, oh, yeah, this was uh, oh, shit. fall of what 2017. Um. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, let me see. And part of my job was to research all of the shows, interview all of the actors. Um, it was the Palestinian Th- Freedom Theater. Yes. Uh, I just need to find out what it's called. Palestinian Freedom. I loved that show. I thought it was brilliant. Oh, it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The North American. What was... Oh, The Siege. The Siege. The Siege. I was so close. Oh, you I were... was like living in the same word sphere what's what was interesting about the siege is it was supposed to go at the pu- up at the public in 2016 but then they shut it down because of, yeah. of controversy so when it went up at skirball there's a lot of protests and stuff which to me i just was like wow it's cool to be just like around controversial theater you know yeah well that's also the coolest like work study job in the world oh to, like... it was the freaking best working at skirball yeah that sounds cool. amazing and i was paid to go see all the shows incredible yeah ah yeah so yeah i'm glad that you saw the i'm glad that you saw the siege but okay so um this was this your final paper for the class yes this was the final paper for the class and i remember being deeply stressed about it because it was one of those classes where it's like your grade is like showing up to the show and then talking about it and there was maybe like you know, you had to give like a response to some reading like once or twice, and that was pretty much it. So this final paper was a bonkers huge right, chunk of your right. grade. Like it was like one of those that was like 80% of your grade was this right. paper or something so like that. So you had that. to pick a show and talk about that show. Yeah, uh, it was less about that. It was more that the assignment was to write like some kind of exploratory or argumentative paper about something involving theater. Um, so it was you like didn't a have very to pick something that you'd seen. Not as the jumping off point. It was a very open-ended uh, prompt. I believe that we either had to use one something that we saw as like a primary example, um, or we were encouraged to, possibly. But it, it wasn't... Um, necessarily like a direct response to something that we Mm -hmm. saw it was meant to be the kind of thing where it's like taking everything that we saw all semester what 
is the thing that most sparked your curiosity. And that was the rabbit hole that you would go down for your paper. So um, before we get into the specifics of home, which I'll have you describe your experience of seeing it, um, Mm. what immersive performances have you attended in your life? What immersive theater? You know, I don't know. I have a weird relationship with immersive theater in general. I don't know that I've attended that many immersive productions. Uh, the one that we're mostly talking about today is more participatory. And I've definitely seen immersive productions like Sleep uh-huh. No More. I love Sleep No More. But for instance, I was like scared to go see Sleep No More. <laughs> I had to be fully talked into it. Uh, <laughs> like, but, but I had to be fully talked into it by uh, my friend, uh, Connor, who very much wanted to go for his birthday, and he like was like, "We gotta go." We Were gotta you go. under twenty one? Like, no. Yes. You were under twenty one, so you had the X on your hand. We, I had the X on my hand, uh, but yes, I had the X on my hand, and uh, I was. I, just, I the thing I remember the most is just being terrified to go into it because i thought it was going to be like a haunted that's what house, everybody that's what everybody says well and i i didn't think they were going to be like jumping out at me trying to startle you me just or anything gonna be skeeved. yeah i thought it was going to be like a very uh deeply unsettling uh experience and that had been for some reason something that i've always been really fascinated with with like immersive theater is you, you'll just see, like, someone will, like, mention some part of a show that, like, sounds insane. And so I would always, like, go on, like, a little, like, Google rabbit hole to be like, what is this show? And I was always... That's what's so funny about immersive theater. Like, the way that people talk about immersive theater is so, like, outlandish. Like, oh, my God, in Sleep yeah. the there's, like, you, you just, like, see naked people. Like, they, they always talk about the craziest there's a part. weird... And same with like home, for it, example. I heard about home, and they were like, "Oh my god, they build a house on stage." People, people talk yeah. about it almost like in an othering way to be like, "Think, think about how crazy theater is right now." Yeah, I think it's part of. Um, I think people love mythologizing things that they haven't fully figured out how to comprehend. Oh, that's that's a great way of like, saying like, that. If, sure. Like if you haven't finished processing whatever experience you went through, then you're going to blow everything up when you discuss it with somebody else because I think subconsciously you're approximating your own experience with it. Okay. And you can't you can't help but like not on purpose, I don't think, but you can't help but like exaggerate and like throw out all of these bits that are the most like insane things that stood out to you because those are the things that you're still working through. And so then when you're someone who's receiving that perspective, all you hear is these like two or three insane yeah. things that sound impossible. Yeah. And you're like that, that like when people talk about sleep tomorrow, they're like, Oh, it's crazy. You're running around. It's pitch black. Everybody's in masks. There's, there's, naked there's blood people everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. There's blood. I got like blood on me. And then like one time I got like pulled into a closet and, and then, then they like, locked they the me door. Yeah. Yeah. And like all of those things, it's almost like you're trying to describe a dream to somebody. <laughs> it's so funny. I had so much trouble whenever um, like 
I would, especially when I was like dating in the early 2020 time, so like January to early March, people would be like, so what do you do for a living? And I'd be like, uh, okay, so there's this thing and it's called sleep no more. And then this is, and then I, I would try to describe it. And the best way I could do it is like, so you walk in, right? I couldn't just be like it's a blank I would have to like it it was a step-by-step process of explaining what it was (laughs) yeah and I think that's maybe why I thought about it the way I did before I went is because the closest classic approximation that people think of is maybe a haunted house where it's like well you walk in and there's people doing things around you and they can interact with you but you're not supposed to really interact with them and uh, you're like okay that's a haunted house yeah 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 so um well, what was I going to say? I was thinking about the fact that, like, immersive theater is becoming more and more mainstream, I, I would argue. Um, at mm-hmm. least, like, you know, the Star Wars Hotel is being considered immersive theater. Yeah. I don't know much about it. I meant to look that up. I was thinking about that last night. Um, but that's that could be considered immersive theater. It's just sort of a, uh, a deeper way to tell a story. Um, mm. There's a show that my dad knew about. It's called, like, Vinny and Something's Wedding. And I don't know that it one. was in the eighties. Um, wedding immersive theater. And it was about an Italian wedding. And it was in the Oh, Tony and Tina's wedding. That's what it was called. It was an immersive show with thirteen actors. It was in the uh, Washington Square United Methodist Church, which is this the Great. church that's attached to Hayden Hall. Oh, yeah. And um, forgot that was functional. Continue. Right. And you go in and you're a, a guest at the wedding. And this was uh, um, 1985. You go in and you're a guest mm-hmm. at the wedding. And it's like a comedy just about being at an Italian American wedding, like big personalities. Wow. And then you go to the reception and you like party with the cast and stuff. Um, so what I, that's fantastic. All that I mean to say is that there's there's really a, I, I would say like a very um, oh weird experimental downtown art scene vibe to the phrase immersive theater where it's like mm-hmm. it, it one it's becoming very mainstream and two it's been around for a long time. You could argue that Rock of Ages is half immersive. They have right before um, right before the uh, the covid <laughs> the COVID right before the COVID, um, they uh, the what? What is this? What the happened? COVID. The, don't don't make me do this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, in ten words or less, what happened with COVID? <laughs> no, um, see that's that's less than ten words. There, uh, there's a a show in LA that was Rock of Ages that it was like half dinner theater, half immersive theater, um, that they opened in early 2020, um. Yeah, it was produced by my dad's friend, Mike Smith. Fun fact. He asked me to shout him out in this. But yeah, so what I mean to say is like immersive theater is a lot more, can be a lot more commercial, a lot more mainstream. Um, yeah, it's a lot more all-encompassing than I think people exactly. think Exactly. Okay, so this paper is about immersive theater. And you um, start defining immersive theater at, that um, audience participation must involve participation in the action of the performance. So it seems like, could you give me a summary of like what you're trying to do with this paper? What was your goal in writing this paper? The biggest goal behind it, what came from a lot of my discomfort or at least uh, anxiety about theater with participatory elements um, and trying to figure out 
why it was that there was some that made me very anxious and then there was others that were just simply among my favorite pieces of theater I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know myself to be someone who's very open to experiencing whatever, especially uh, in theater. Um, so the assumption that I kind of made was that I wonder if the reason why I have a bad reaction to some works of participatory theater, especially since I'm such a like kind of rule following sort of person is if maybe people are making missteps in how they are introducing the element of participation. Mm -hmm. And so where that kind of spun off into was trying to figure out if is it if I was mostly interested in actually doing something with participation or just in the idea of participating and then finally starting to unpack and argue if the idea of participation is just as important as if you are actually participating in it. If the possibility, whether you are seizing that chance or not, is actually more powerful yeah. than actually doing. I, I, I like a, a phrase that they use a lot in the McKittrick universe. Um, I, I wouldn't say by people within the hotel. I would say people... Mitch, McKittrick is, is the venue within Sleep No More, of Sleep No More. Um, a lot of people, when describing Sleep No More, they use the phrase illusion of choice a lot, which I yeah. I, I think you, you describe very well. So it seems like you do have a mixed relationship with immersive theater. Is, has there been shows that you've been to where you were like, they did not do this well? And let's just talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the one that comes to mind the most that I've seen was a show called um, Miracle that was this two-person Miracle. show um, that was... It was very interesting. There's the show itself is very fascinating, and all of this, uh, all it, it, it's a really it's a really interesting show. It kind of imagines, if I'm remembering correctly, it, like an imagined correspondence between a guy named Gigi Allen, who's this, or was this truly, uh, I'm going to say, hedonistic rocker that did a lot of uh, disgusting mm-hmm. things at his shows. Um, and puts him in conversation with, I'm forgetting the woman's name, but like this woman who does like all these photos of like babies that's meant to be like really cutesy and like babies and flowers, like for calendars and stuff. Like it's meant to be like a very like cutesy, like grandma thing, but it's also weirdly unsettling okay. um, and puts them in conversation with each other. And it's a, it's a, it was a deeply fascinating show. Both the performers uh, were wonderful, but walking into the space there's props first of all you had to uh, it was like a black box so you had to walk across the stage itself to get to your mm. seat i never which liked is that. always a, it's always a little bit weird to open up the door to the theater and then suddenly you are on the stage and you're faced with the audience and like let's say you get there at like 759 there's already a whole group of people there that are watching you walk in and it just it's kind of weird but the that just you know that happens all the time. Um, but the 
thing that threw me off was that there was uh, props on the seats. There was like uh, baby bibs, like food hmm. bibs, and um, like breast milk bags. Like I, I, if, if I'm remembering correctly, like like lactation oh. bags um, for if you were uh, pumping. If I'm remembering correctly, and there there was no comment on any of them. They were just there. And the first thing that I thought upon sitting down, and I can't have been the only one, was like, what are they going to make me do? Huh. Why do I have a baby What bit? are they going to make me do? What is that? Why is why is there a breast mm-hmm. pump? Like, like what? And it wasn't an actual breast. I forget what it was. But it was like that kind of thing where I was like, what what is this going to be? Yeah. And I remember like choosing not to sit on like the front row where it was like on the stage and choosing not to sit on the aisle, like already trying to defend myself Hmm. Um, and just being deeply uncomfortable with that and being very anxious about that. And come to find out over the course of the show, there is some audience participation, but it is never uncomfortable and never, by the way, involves any of those props. Huh. And it, it's all just like you ask, you like ask some questions. You might like throw a paper airplane, but that's like, that's like pretty much it. It's like a very, it's a, it's a very safe audience interaction. Um, but I just remember being made so uncomfortable by being like thrown into the deep end like yeah. that. And it just kind of set me off. It makes you feel threatened and it made me start thinking about how a defensive audience is not a receptive audience because there was, I'm sure many other elements of the show that again was a great show Mm -hmm. that um, I know I didn't receive. And I know that there's, there's definitely parts of that show that are meant to make you uncomfortable. Um, And I think it's important that there's parts of anything that make you uncomfortable because if you're not, uncomfortable then you're not being challenged but it's the fact that i think that the discomfort i don't even think was intentional i I think there's a strong chance that they just were like you know it'd be kind of funny and interesting is if there was baby babes because we talk about babies might be interesting (laughs) to walk in there's baby babes it didn't feel um intentional enough yeah, and I think that that's the biggest thing that's important when you're making anything is trying to interrogate, like, what is the point that I'm trying to mm-hmm. make? What tools are best for me to utilize to make that point? And what's the most responsible way to utilize those tools? Yeah. Have you ever performed in an immersive show? I've not performed in a fully immersive show i would like to i'd be fully on board with it it sounds amazing um the closest approximation i had weirdly was that i was in a uh play my junior year at adler called uh dancing at lunasa which is a wonderful play um and the director it's centered around my character who's like looking back at his childhood in uh Mm -hmm. ireland um, so I, uh, or Northern Ireland, I should say, I believe, I don't remember exactly. It's That's been okay. a while, um, <laughs> but the director's concept for it was, oh, it's like 
since you're, I, my character only speaks to the audience ever. All I do is monologue mm. and I'm walking through my experience and then me and the audience are watching my childhood play out. And then I go back to talking to the audience. The only people aside from one or two deliberate choices that I ever even make eye contact with are audience mm -hmm. members. Um, and I come out like carrying a beer and, uh, we played music at intermission. So at intermission, I like came out with like a guitar and the cast had some instruments and we like did a concert right. for the audience. So it was like a very like connected thing, but it, it really did have this participatory thing where it felt like they had been inducted into a state of spectatorship where people, I was, cause I was only ever making eye contact with people and talking to them and trying to get things from them that I would often have people responding to what I was doing. Yeah. Which is a very weird experience. To, I'm, I'm glad that they were doing it because it helped me a lot with what I was uh, having to do. But it, it's very weird to be <laughs> monologuing and to realize that you have put people in a state where you're talking and they're like, Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're you're only and it, it it feeds you and helps you and you're like right and you like go off of that but it was uh it was a very it was a very interesting experience that i loved a yeah. lot uh and i would definitely want to pursue it, it, more. it makes me think about just like um soliloquies and shakespeare and everything like that where it's like in in some of the i, I mean oldest uh currently performed western theater like it's just extremely common to make direct eye contact with the audience and and acknowledge that they're mm -hmm. there and um that was like w when I toured with Chamber Theater um like I told mm -hmm. you with the show Encore it was I was the narrator in in most of the stories and so there I am in Sleepy Hollow making direct eye contact with them saying I'm about to tell you a story and this is what it's going to be about mm -hmm. so it's funny yeah. that it is a proscenium and there is an audience but it's it's almost like level 1 of of immersion like level <laughs> level one of participatory um i personally like because like you had said you have a complicated relationship with immersive theater i don't know i've just always like loved it i learned about sleep no more in high school because my drama teacher like he, he did a lesson on it when i was in high school um because he mm -hmm. went to see it and so just a lesson on immersive theater in general and then when I guess maybe at playwrights, there's just sort of like a immersive theater vibe to it because uh, one of my teachers, Kelly Bartnick, was was in Sleep No More, and we have um, they playwrights sent me to be in an immersive show called Hall Pass, which was set in a high school, which is which which I looked up very very interesting. interesting. Uh, what it's such a cool what idea. What I like yeah. about Hall Pass, it's Hall Pass by uh, Blind Spot Collective, um, is that they intended to make it so that high schools who don't have theaters can license the show and do a show. Um, mm -hmm. Which I was like, oh my God, that's so true. So many high schools don't have a physical theater. Like, Yeah, my middle school, we did it. Uh, they did plays on a carpeted stage that was in the yeah, lunchroom. Yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. a, um, a few middle schools that we performed when I went on tour that it was just in the gym. And we had to load in our, our set to the gym. There was one time they had recently, like, redone the gym and relaminated the floor, which pissed me off even more because I was like, damn, you have this gorgeous gym that should be mm. for a high school. And it's at an elementary school and you don't have a theater. 
I was like, just had my little angry theater pants on where I was like, I'm performing on the floor. You need a stage. Um, but you know, whatever. They still loved it. Um, so, and then I don't know how it ended up this way, but like I ended up doing until I went on tour, uh, exclusively immersive theater as my profession when I graduated. So I did really, uh, yeah. Um, the first show I did, which I did, uh, I graduated in January, 2019. So then I immediately was cast in Alita battle angel. Which... <laughs> so there, here's another thing to talk about immersive theater, Alita battle angel. Um, if you Google it, it says an escape room. Um, but in all of the marketing, it's an um, immersive show. They they wanted it to mm. feel like immersive theater, but a lot of the it was mostly games. So Alita Battle Angel uh, Passport to Iron City was a uh, immersive experience that I think was in New York, Austin and L.A. Yes, I'm correct about that. And it um, it was, you know, they say it wasn't for the marketing of Alita Battle Angel, the movie, but, you know, shrug. So. Um, you go in, you're in a bar, and then you go in and you're you're in a warehouse that is supposed to be Iron City, which is the setting of the movie. And you can go, you are assigned to a team, and in that team you can go to different areas of past, of Iron City and um, earn, like, uh, money in different ways. You can scavenge the scrapyard, you can go to the market and bargain, you can go he- here... Mm-hmm. And um, at the end, you get to bet on a motorball game and only one team gets this golden coin at the end, which is um, your pass to uh, Zalem, which is like a, the higher thing, whatever. So it was we can talk about, you know, escape rooms. You have one actor, you know, the uh, the game mm-hmm. master, and you are in a different environment where you have to get out and you have to work in as a team. So it's like. I don't know. I think escape rooms could also be considered immersive theater in a way, even though there's not an actor physically there. It's usually over a loudspeaker. So, well, I think that definitely is immersive because it's the idea that you're part of a community, like you're in this group that is taking an active role in this fictional situation. What was fun about the Alita thing is that, um, what, what they took pride in was, well, at Sleep No More, you can't change the ending. At Passport to Iron right. City, yeah. you have control over the ending. Who wins at the end? Which team wins? Mm-hmm. You have full control over the story, which I was like, that's actually kind of cool. That's fair because, you know, there's a fantasy about, oh, my God, I could change the ending at Sleep No More. There's there's all this, like, lore of the potential. Yeah, there's, like, that weird lore of, like, if you do the right, like, mission then you'll end up literally in the show i've heard that rumor which constantly. i cannot comment on <laughs> i assigned way sure. we, you and i have talked about that privately but i signed i signed yeah, ndas yeah, yeah. and so what i if if we get into sleep no more i am going to speak extremely mysteriously about it well because you know we don't well, know I, if the show is, 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 is uh reopening or anything i don't know anything about right. that i haven't heard anything but and I, I, you know, I'm moving to L.A. It's not like I'm <laughs> go back, but I just have such a respect for the the deep lore of the show that I right. I'm not I'm not about to spoil anything like that. Hell, fucking no. Well, that also <laughs> that also goes back to what we were talking about with like the illusion of choice thing, mm-hmm. where that is a valuable commodity. The fact that and really the whole purpose behind the paper is that idea of the fact that you people really think that they could end up literally in the show if they do the right mission 
that is more valuable than if anybody ever actually does it or not. And it's more valuable than if hmm. anybody wants to do it or not. It's just the idea that everybody, it seems legitimately possible. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Because it seems possible, that's that's what makes it good. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... <laughs> The other, the other thing I worked at, so yeah, I did Alita. I was a scrapper in the scrapyard. Um, you know, you had different roles, but yeah, there was a script. You had to audition. It was a whole thing. It was directed by well, somebody from ATW, was... actually. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's actually a question that I had. Is and this might be perhaps a silly question. Is there what is the difference in actor prep work and rehearsal process for an immersive theater production versus a regular theater production? Because I yeah. feel like. It's very complicated. So um, for Alita, we did have scripts and we had to uh, rehearse three different roles that were like our specialties. And Mm -hmm. uh, we would just rehearse with each other. So we like half of we would have two casts in at at the same time and then one cast would play with the other cast. You can't do it without an audience. You know, you have to rehearse with a fake audience. Um, Similarly, well, um, at Sleep No More, I wasn't cast but I was still part of the immersion. So there was not a script for me. Um, uh-huh. So that's a whole other thing. That's just purely improv. I, it's that was it's it's a bit more fluid with Sleep No More. But if I was in the cast, you have to rehearse with with audience. And, you know, I don't know how they rehearse. I don't I don't know anything about that. But anyway, um, I, <laughs> I don't know anything. Um you got you got really scared there for I was a second. Like, I felt like behind the camera there was like a team of lawyers. They were just shaking their heads. Like I don't know anything. I don't know my name. I don't know where I am. I'm in my stepbrother's <laughs> closet. Um, and uh, so uh, Museum of Ice Cream really really likes to charade like they are immersive theater. Um, we had to audition mm-hmm. with scripts. We had to rehearse with a script and lines, and we got notes. Um. And it was similarly, you know, we couldn't call each other by our real names. We had to immerse. I was Freezy. <laughs> that was my name. John's name. Perfect. John's name was Tub. Um, and like literally. I'm not gonna lie. You got off easier than John did. No, no, no. He came up with it. <laughs> we came up with our own ice cream names. And when the audience entered Museum of Ice John, Cream, John, why did you choose Tub? <laughs> because. He would make the joke. He'd say, um, "I used to be, I used to be pint, but I got a promotion." Isn't that funny? Um, okay, I take it all back. It's pretty good. Really good. There was, um, there was really one good. person named Truck, which I really love. The ice cream truck. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, what? I, the theme that I'm realizing is that these are all last names. If if you all share the first name Ice Cream, oh! you all then have different last names. Wait, that's so just funny. Crazy tub truck. Uh, my. Uh, my friend uh, Holly Painter was uh, Ginger Snap. Um, okay, well now it's broken, but for a while it was fun. It was for me. it was fun for a minute there. But uh, <laughs> what was I gonna say? And when the audience enters, the first thing they do is they choose an ice cream name, and we don't call people by their real name. We call them by their ice cream name, whatever that ice cream name is, and they wear a name tag. So the audience walks mm. around, and I'm like, Blue M and M. How are you? I love your shirt. You know, my name is Freezy. Oh, so glad to see you, Pistachio. Literally. How are you? Yeah, oh, 100%. And what was even funnier is like, if you work at Museum of Ice Cream and there's like drama, you talk about each other with your ice cream names. Like, you'll be like, oh my God, did you hear about Red Velvet? Oh my God. <laughs> like, oh, Cinnamon is being such a ugh today, you know? Like. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. So, like, 
when, when we talk about like I, I just happened to work in immersive theater exclusively <laughs> except for the tour <laughs> is is what I mean to say and I just have a soft spot for it I, I love it so very much but what I really like that you talk about in your essay is um let me get to it let's see let's see let's see let's see I by the way for the listeners I've not thought about this essay in literally years and that's the magic of this podcast oh thank you well that's that's what's fun you know me and Amanda uh talk about an essay that we wrote in high school um and what's even you know you bring up a good point right we haven't been able to experience immersive theater since March you know um yeah and there's not really a foreseeable time that we can experience immersive theater um, except for I could talk about one day die, but I don't think that that that's worthy of look up one day die yourself. There there have been no pro ha, had um, an awards this year. No pro is no proscenium. It's a publication about mm-hmm. immersive theater. They still had awards this year because there were so many productions that started online, whether that was um, audio immersive theater, whether they delivered you a box of something, whether. Um, it was Escaton where there's like different performers in different Zoom rooms, things like that. Immersive mm-hmm. theater still happened. So it's just funny that you talk about that. It's we're talking about immersive theater from two years ago. And these are things that are not tangible to us right now at all. Yeah. Yeah. Except I could talk about I saw a show in Phoenix called Curiouser and Curiouser, which had an audience of 10 people. Everyone was <clears> masked. Um, it was extremely safe. I think they did a very good job with immersion. It sounds very similar to uh, Then She Fell, the the third rail thing. Yes. Then She Fell was a lot more sleep no more-ish and like involved and free, whereas Curiouser and Curiouser was very guided, extremely guided. Um, There was one one one-on-one in in Curiouser and Curiouser, which I appreciated. Um, But... Was it... Did everybody get to experience it? No, one audience member out of 10. Interesting. Yeah, only one person in the whole experience gets to do the one-on-one. And it was um, my roommate, Marisa. And then you get to save the day at the end, which is cool. Um, yeah, it was it was very well done. I appreciated Curiouser and Curiouser. But it, it they had a, they continued through December and they had to close because of uh, COVID. Um, so it was like they it was safe enough in September, but the rates were too high in December. So they had to close mm. again. Which was very unfortunate, but necessary. I appreciate that they that they t- took every precaution. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about. Let's see. You have okay. I wanted to dig into this this part of the essay so that we can um, discuss immersive theater with these uh, things in mind. So you you talk about priming audience for tar- participation and how important that mm. is for successful immersive theater. Uh, the other elements that you talk about that are important for immersive theater are free choice to participate, clear goals and control, immediate and direct feedback, balance of challenge and skills, phases for pause and learning, and creative expression with a defined artistic frame. I'm obsessed with all of those things. I think that that is, I want to tattoo that list to my body. Um, it's so smart. It's so smart. I also want to clarify that I wish I'd come up with that. It was uh, it was from a uh I believe article by a by a group. The article is called "The Stage of Participation: Audience Involvement in Interactive Performances." They're the ones that lay out that guideline, uh, and it's it's so it's so brilliant, and it's kind of a bible at this point. Are these publications um, that you reference in your paper? When when did they when were they written? Usually, but fascinatingly enough, by and large, uh, they were more recent. 
Um, I think that just because immersive theater is becoming more and more uh, popular and available, I feel like, and I'm sure that there's examples of people who have discussed participatory theater long before this, but when I was just researching for the paper, just naturally all the sources came from, at that point, the last 10 years. Well, it's so funny. I, 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 you know, do you think, do you think probably Sleep No More had a big hand in that? People were like, just like, oh my God, this thing can work and, and it can run for a long time. I think so. Yeah. There, there was, um, more of a, I don't know what to make of this pattern. So I'll put this on you to figure out is that <laughs> the, uh, there was kind of three time sweating. zones. <laughs> <laughs> There's like three different like time zones where I pulled my resources from. And the first was like psychological references to like how people think and behave in groups and oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those are all from, you know, the, the twenties and thirties and like, that's a, like around when psych was starting to boom a little bit right. more. And group and think, then, um, like that whole psychological uh, phenomenon came about a lot with uh, World War II kind of studies. Yeah. Like how did yeah. that happen? So, yeah. Go ahead. How did that happen? Um, <laughs> So do we want to take a quick 45 minutes to talk about how World War II happened or no? We don't have time? All right, great. Um, so it was uh, a first chunk of sources that were from older psych concepts when they were introduced. And then a second chunk of sources that were from like the early to mid 2000s that were all from philosophers and oh. art critics and art historians and curators mm -hmm. was where a lot of my a fair amount of the theoretical concepts I have in my uh, paper came mm -hmm. from and then the third wave of sources was from the last like five years and it was people actually doing not theory but research and groundwork of I've attended all of these productions and this is the through line that I see mm -hmm. or we have tried we're a theater company that tries doing this and we have figured out through trial and error this code that works for us right um so it is a weird pivot from the ideas of how people think to a very long gap to the theories of how we feel like participation should work mm -hmm. to then shortly after that, the actual strategies and concrete definitions. So um, in this paper, you reference the production, uh, the BAM production home um, as, mm -hmm. as kind of your anchor to with which discuss, uh, I think successful immersive theater. Um, could you tell me your experience of, of, going to home yeah uh so home first of all uh takes the prize for my favorite piece of theater i've ever really? seen uh yeah i truly love it i death. wish i saw it because there it was definitely a show where it was like oh my god did you like like we were saying in the beginning did you hear they have a show yeah. in brooklyn where they build a house which like i feel like people we're, we're gonna we're gonna get there shortly yeah. but it's it, oh boy um, <laughs> Ooh mama. oh boy so it was one of the shows for this uh class 
the drama performance mm-hmm. class, and we had to um, <clears throat> we had to go to the Bam Harvey Theater uh, in good old Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and uh, we show up and we get to the space, and the Bam Harvey Theater is a massive space. It's it's not like a black box. It. It's like it's kind of uh, I don't really know what to compare it to. It has working from like the back forward. It has a very steep mezzanine. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you're gonna if you like trip over the seat in front of you, you are going to die. <laughs> it's a very steep mezzanine <laughs> to a to a point where our professor told us uh, when <laughs> we were planning to go. He said. Just so you know, we are sitting in the mezzanine, which is very steep. <laughs> and then the entire class all at once was like, why are you telling us about what the chairs are like? And you then you went and you were like, oh my God. If, <laughs> yeah. So if that gives you any indication that somebody felt like they needed to warn a group of people about how steep it was. <laughs> and we thought they were done for doing it. And then we got there and they were right to warn us. <laughs> um, so it, it's this very steep mezzanine. And then a orchestra section that kind of rakes down slowly towards the Mm -hmm. stage but the stage itself there is no like orchestra pit and most importantly the stage is not raised it is a flat okay okay what seems to be concrete space so based on anything that you can see you're like it's almost it's almost like an arena almost in a weird way it's still technically like proscenium style um, right but i think it's they like call this... that arena seating okay great i'm smart <laughs> the... <laughs> no, i might be really stupid <laughs> no i don't i truly uh i don't know um or stadium seating. That, that seems so g- keep going i thought stadium was if it was all the way around um but it, it's just like raked kind of situation all the way down to the stage and uh isn't very important that you understand that it's the stage is not raised. It's like this flat, like concrete space, right? Um, where the front row of oh, the no, audience, it's in the round like their the feet arena, rest on the I same think. concrete. But keep going. But off. I think it's where the seats are higher. So I'm, we're getting closer. <laughs> There's something. There's, There's somewhere, something there. Someone out there in listener okay. land so, has the right so word. So you walk into the show. So you walk into the show, and it's you know pretty. Seems like a pretty traditional like setup. The stage is completely blank. It's just this concrete, barren space. Um, with, I believe, a few work lights already set up, like the kind of things you would have for, like, if you were working on a house, like, late at night or something. Uh-huh. Um, and we look at the program, and it's created by this uh, guy, Jeff Sobel, who I personally think is a genius, um, credited along with, like, six other performers, uh, and then somebody else as the director or co-conceiver, maybe, I believe just the director. Um and so Jeff Sobel walks out and he picks up a work light and starts I'm like looking through him. the space. Yeah, yeah please. Um, and he starts looking through the space. He like kind of holds up the work light and it gets everybody in the eyes a little bit. So everybody in the audience is like, ah, I don't, I don't get it, get that out of here. And then Jeff is like, oh, my bad. Like he is very like apologetic uh-huh. and stuff. And you're like, thanks for listening, my guy. <laughs> and then uh, he proceeds to get this big plastic tarp uh laid out which uh in life always makes me nervous if you're at a show and they lay down a plastic tarp you're like blood Um, is coming yeah like something's gonna happen and so he lays out this plastic tarp and then make sure it's all like squared out nicely and then 
yanks the tarp away and there's like a wooden frame Mm. has like appeared and now remember it is a barren concrete space oh i love magic that's cool so i'm not yeah i'm (laughs) not certain how that happened and it's like the area is dark only illuminated by these work lights but it's you're, you're like i don't get how that happens and i'm forgetting the exact order of events but at some point like a bed appears in a very similar way and he gets into the bed and very quickly also as if like magic like transforms into this like little boy who i believe is the second human you see and you kind of get the idea that like oh this kid is maybe him when he was little and some people come out from the sides who are like clearly like contractors who maybe work on a house and then they start helping with plastic sheeting that they start pulling away to reveal these wooden frames and they start to erect them and over time you realize like oh they're building something and then as it starts to take shape in this like completely wooden framework you're like oh they're building so a during house. this time are you comfortable in the audience talking to the people next to you or is it very audience stage I'm in the audience and it's quiet. It's it's a very audience stage. I'm in the audience and it's quiet because also on stage they okay, are not cool. speaking. So you're it's it's a whole room um, of silence. It's a whole not room silence, of silence, but no talking. I don't. Yeah. No talking. There may I remember during the show there was a man uh with a guitar who played songs at various points. How long um, is this show? As the musical scoring. It's like an hour fifteen. Oh. It's tight. It's like no seventy way. minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's nuts. Um, and so it's, it feels very, um, almost sacred in a, in a, in a strange way where, yeah, yeah, where, where I, you feel very comfortable if you wanted to, to like whisper to the person next to you. Uh, but everybody's just very like transfixed by this like literal magic that's happening Mm -hmm. in front of you. Um, And so they start constructing this house and you keep wondering when they're going to stop (laughs) because it's hard to build a house. (laughs) Um, And they just keep going and it keeps getting more and more detailed and it turns into a second story house and stairs appear and it just gets fleshed out more and more and there's now seven performers moving around, taking over and doing all this work. And when there's seven bodies, you can't watch everything at once. So all the time you'll be like tracking one person and then you'll track them back. And all of a sudden they will like, there will be a door where they just were. And you're like, how did that door get there? And you know that like probably somebody else put the door there and maybe the person next to you literally was watching that happen and saw them put the door there. But it's like this very weird. It felt like magic like, and stuff new just things appearing. Were yeah. It felt like yeah, and it just gets more and more detailed in this unbelievable way, and in, it's go- somehow going so fast mm. until it keeps making its way to be a legitimate full two-story house that has been like cut in half, so you can see uh-huh. inside, and there's a fully fledged, like there's a bedroom upstairs with like a master bath and the stairs and another bedroom upstairs and closets and the kitchen and the dining room and the living room. And it, it I cannot stress enough how much 
it is a realistic cross-section okay. of a house that has appeared on this stage that you watched appear on this stage that was completely empty and had a concrete floor over the course of like 30 right. minutes. And then you start to realize that very few of these performers are interacting with each other at all. And it kind of becomes clear that they're almost, this is my interpretation of it, but that they're the ghosts of people who have lived in this house okay. almost. And so we're watching, it's like the only constant is the space and how the space has changed over time and living in that space simultaneously are these like five, six, seven different generations, these different owners of this house okay. almost. Um, and there's a, you start to watch them like go through their day. And so someone will go to work, someone will stay at home. There's a moment where everybody gets out of bed and they all appear out of this bed, even though it looks like there's only one person in the bed. They keep crawling out of it like a clown car. And there's like six different bodies in the bathroom at the same mm -hmm. time getting ready for work. And they don't interact okay, at all. Okay, they so don't I understand touch each other at all. Ghosts, they're not, sure. yeah, they're not handing things off to each other at all. But it's the choreography is perfect uh -huh. where someone will hang a towel up on a towel bar and the second that their hand comes off it, somebody in the shower is grabbing that towel so that they can dry off with it. Like it's this insane, like constantly turning clock. They do the same thing, like preparing breakfast in the kitchen. Like it's just this insanely choreographed smattering of mm -hmm. memories all playing out at once. And then we get to the end of the day and it's clear that maybe they're preparing for a party. And it's at this point where the little boy gets somebody from the audience and he talks to a few different people in the audience and then finds somebody that I, that everybody seems comfortable with that either the kid likes and the person seems prepared to like help him out. And the kid and some of the performers start giving this guy in the audience instructions. And again, most of this is wordless. Like I know that they're talking, you can see them talking, but there's no attempt made for us to hear oh, them. Oh, cool. It's private. There's no mics. It's, it's very private. And he helps them kind of set up for this party, like cracking open wine and stuff like that. And they start getting more people from the audience until this party just like starts off as very quiet and private. Then it turns into like a small professional dinner party and then like a, a, a friendly but small like birthday mm -hmm. gathering. And it like starts to snowball more and more and more and more people come out of the audience that have been like invited up. Some people, I don't even know if they were like personally selected to come up. They may have just like decided to join. And you start to realize there's more people from the audience now that outnumber the right. performers. And it just is getting bigger and bigger. And costumes start coming out, like mascot costumes and like Halloween costumes. And it turns into like a New Year's celebration. And up in the mezzanine, we start passing out like people from the party who were downstairs come up to the mezzanine and they're like, here you go. They start passing down wine. They start stringing up like the party lights oh, that they had been wow. stringing up downstairs. It gets massive. And they like, they head back downstairs, but they're like, come on. So some people like go with them to go downstairs. And then um, it, it turns into this crazy new year's party where like a marching band shows up and all of a sudden there's minimum 40 bodies 
plus a marching band, milling through this insane New Year's party. And it's so, there's pillow fights and people dancing and it's so, it's incredible. It's the most, and, and, and it's perfectly, it's somehow perfectly choreographed where somebody who was trying to keep the house tidy uh, gets kind of knocked back by two people like running down the stairs and they have to like, they like fix a picture frame and they like go back up the stairs after Well, how them. do they end this and it's... sort of thing? How do you end a party? Well, that that is the question, isn't it? Because it's this just insane thing. And then the party just kind of winds down. It it takes on, to my memory of it, and I could be completely misremembering, but it didn't feel like a harsh, uh, it didn't feel like a harsh stop. There may have been some grand moment of celebration, but it wasn't like, and we're done. It just felt very like we had reached a natural wow. high. You know, and it was, yeah. and it's the same thing that's after like a New Year's party where you reach the natural high of like midnight, and then five minutes later, people are like, "All right, <laughs> All right I'm gonna, you know? I'm gonna head out." Uh, you know, because um, when when you started talking about that, I was like, it made me think about um, with uh, it made me think about uh, Sleep No More and Alita and how they end things, because when you're in an immersion, you sort of feel like you can be there forever. Um, Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm like, wow, how do you end a party? How do you make people, instead of just saying, okay, the party's over, and you're like, but I want to keep going. Because um, at at Sleep No More, what would often happen at the at the quote-unquote ending, people would try to go back in the hotel because mm-hmm. they wouldn't understand that it was over. They thought that it was always going on. Um, and uh, what was good is, you know, we have uh, music going on, um, post hotel tour you know in the in the mandrelay so you can still sort of feel it's almost like a a nicer like (laughs) it's not a sharp ending it's like a like a fade out it's almost like an after party party where you're still part of the immersion like there's still you know characters on on the on the uh, mandrelay stage performing so you sort of fade out at alita there is a formal ending where they say you won the coin and but you know there is actually a post thing where you can go and you can take pictures and there's a gift shop but it's still part of the mm-hmm. world yeah that's really I've just, I, that's just a new thought that I had how do you end immersive experiences um, but uh, another thing that that, uh, that came up when you were talking was the idea of intimacy where um, I think another part of, of immersive theater successful immersive theater that's important is um, when you're a uh, quote unquote spectator, not if you're not an actor, you know, um, mm. one of the things that a lot of people fear when they go to immersive theater is that they're going to be put on the spot or put on the stage or put a spotlight on. And what I really like yeah. that you said that home did is, you know, they talk to this person and you don't hear it. Like it's, it's extremely intimate. Mm-hmm. And I think that good immersive theater does that successfully. It looks you in the eye. And it makes you feel seen in a way, um, which was one of the things that I loved about being yeah. an actor was I, you know, could look people in the eye and hear about their story personally. Um, mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And yeah. So I guess it's like that makes me think about, too, when things open up again, I feel like people will be searching for that sort of 
intimacy, that that sort of outreach of I want somebody to touch mm-hmm. me. I want somebody to look at me. I don't want to sit in a theater and observe. I don't know. That's just that's just yeah. an idea. But you you know you know the thrill of like even when you get um when you get participation in Sleep No More, it's private. Mm-hmm. Other people aren't watching you. They yeah. take you into a room and it's just you and the actor. And I find I find that yes. that Sleep No More's use of participation is like the most sought after effective, you know, one-on-ones are duplicated and like in in so many other immersive shows. Um I don't know, what do you think about about all that it, shit that I'm saying? <laughs> if you're going to let me talk about a play for 8 minutes, then I feel like you're allowed to say all these wonderful <laughs> points of view. Um I think no, I think that that's all spot on and that is Again, I'm far from the first person to say this, but I think that the key with participatory theater and immersive theater is entirely in that inv- uh, mm. invitation. And I think that Sleep No More is, in my opinion, for immersive theater, probably the uh, gold standard in that induction um, and in how clear it is and in how secure and safe that boundaries because as somebody who was very anxious their first time there um i still very much felt cognizant of my own decisions and i knew like there'd be like you know crazy music coming from somewhere and i you know have the thought like oh you could go in there and that's going to be nuts or you could walk away from it right now and then it was you know my choice to be like no i want to see what the nuts thing is i'm going to stay in the back for right now but i want to go in and want to see what that is um I think where it gets tricky is on the performer's side is if they mess up in that invitation and in that induction into participant. And I think on the spectator's side where it gets messy is if they have a very poor understanding of these social contracts of the performance <laughs> and of how they're allowed to engage. Although I can't help fairness... but laugh just from my experiences of, <laughs> of people being people doing shit and then saying, I just didn't know I couldn't. Oh my God, well, and dude. And that raises an interesting point where it's either, it could go either way, where that could be the fault of the production and not communicating those boundaries. But it could also be, entirely on the person deciding like i want to do this thing and i'm going to act like i didn't know any better oh that's interesting yeah yeah no there were plenty of experiences that put actors in danger um where it was audience members just being like well i just fucking wanted to (laughs) are you are are you privy to sharing what some of those were (laughs) great i'm not allowed um Um, yeah it's it's so funny i could never ever even have the intention of working there again but i just will not burn those bridges i absolutely refuse i'm thinking about you know what i uh what is that new york show that's outdoors uh lose latrec or something oh no no latrec oh no you were making a joke great (laughs) i was doing what it was was i was doing a bit you were doing you were doing a bit i can't see your face right now i was doing a bit oh voyeur (laughs) Uh, the windows of Toulouse-Lautrec, right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I do know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. there have been some problems with the performers 
Um, that's another thing with immersive theater. It's harder to protect your performers. Um, you know, actors in in not yeah, in uh, immersive shows are often in because they can't protect them in the same way when audience members touch them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Lautrec is is non-union. Um, and uh, what you call it? There was an instance, I believe, because it's an outdoor immersive show performing right now. It's interesting that immersive theater, some in some instances, can still be performed at this time, but but uh, proscenium theater cannot be. But in Unmaking, there uh, was, I guess, a performer who, because it, it is going on in the West Village, there is a performer who mm-hmm. was like wearing a corset and went behind a building or something during a performance, which was part of their track, and then got um, assaulted or something. I think that that... And they couldn't... There's no protections for these types of... I just hit the microphone. There's no protections for actors in immersive theater, necessarily. And, you know, there was... um, I want to say in 2018, there was an article that came out about Sleep No More performers having been assaulted by audience members as well. Yeah. 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 Which is a whole other interesting element to take on um, when you talk about boundaries and what what part the audience plays. I think immersive theater too does a interesting job of telling you the audience member who you are in the story. Right. So in Sleep No More, you're a guest at the Mm McKittrick Hotel, and it's opening. We just opened this hotel, and we're so excited. Um, At home, Mm -hmm. you are a guest at this party um in alita battle angel you are a person who lives in iron city when i saw curiouser and curiouser Mm -hmm. that thing in phoenix the what i i thought was really cool is the audience always called you alice would look you in the eye and say alice to every single audience member um i think that's another point mm -hmm. with participatory theater and immersive theater is that oftentimes in shows that are very immersive or very participatory, you it is very clear going in that that is expected of you. That so, you are so about you, to take something on. Yeah, mm. that, that like, like you can't go to sleep no more and not know that you will be masked and walking around and having to find your own way mm-hmm. and that you may see X, Y, and Z thing. Like they're very clear about... They're very they're as clear as they can be about things like that, which is why I think that shows that are in a traditional theater space like home, um, when they the assumption is if, if you're not blasting left and right, that it's participatory, if that's not very clear that you're accepting that invitation when you buy that ticket and it's something that is kind of sprung upon you. Mm-hmm then you need to be very careful about how you do it. I think it is completely valid and good to spring that on people. I think it can be a very valuable uh, surprise, a very valuable direction that a production can take, but it's deeply important to get them fully on board with the knowledge that like, hey, I know you came in with this one social contract. I would like to change that contract to something different yeah 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 like and uh something that i i wonder what it does to your psyche when someone looks at you and calls you by a different name and you just have to take that on like what and like you said um people not understanding the rules i'm thinking even about museum of ice cream that you're not allowed you i we would say that you walk in the building and your real name melts off like 
your like mm-hmm. it's ice cream <laughs> and um you have to choose a new name and that everybody for the rest of the day is calling you this does it make you more silly what what does it do to you when you are yeah. somebody else and in sleep no more you know uh you walk into the the mandrelay and if you start talking about anything that's not in the context of 1939 they're going to look at you like you have six heads so you yeah. have to take on the idea that you are a guest it is 1939 i am in the mccage hotel you know what i'm saying um yeah. another show that does it successfully that i just want to discuss really quickly because it's um another way that theater can be is broken bone bathtub which was a theater project which was always inside of a bathtub it was by Shivana Laughlin, who I consider to be a complete genius. Um, so what she mm-hmm. would do is she would go to people's houses and be in their bathtub. And you, if you had a big bathtub, the audience can be 10 people. If you have a small bathtub, the audience is four people. And um, it's based on her experience of after she had a bike accident, um, mm-hmm. she uh, broke her arm or her wrist. And so she had she couldn't take showers anymore. So she would go to her friend's houses if they had bathtubs and then her friends would give her a bath. And so you play the part of her best friend. Well, and that's also a specifically interesting show to me as well, because that is the performer fully putting, at least seemingly fully putting the trust and control in the hands of the spectators. Because from the jump, it is the spectator inviting the artist into their home. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they are responsible by agreeing to the show at all, they're responsible for her and for her well-being, even if even if they're not. Like, I don't know what kind of security measures are in place, but you do have that sense. Like, if I was having somebody come into my home to perform a production, I would be like, I, I gotta, I, I'm responsible for them. I gotta mm-hmm. make sure that everything is, is nice and clean, and, and I wanna make sure that they feel in comfortable. In a way, you're already doing what the show wants you to do, which is, like, taking care of her. And like, yeah. um, that's so interesting. It's like outside and inside of the story, you are already performing that role as you're inviting her into your home. Yeah. Wow. Cool. I'm going to send this to Siobhan after. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of her. I wrote a paper on her in, in, in school. She's very cool. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, I had another thing. Okay. So then I was like, just thinking to myself, is there an immersive show that I've experienced where I am myself? Like, mm-hmm. you go in and you are Jonathan, you know? Can you right. think of what any? I'm thinking of Tension and One Day Die, where the whole thing is Darren Bowsman mm-hmm. is going to investigate your life for months beforehand, and you're walking in, and he's going to fuck with you knowing mm-hmm. your life. I, yes and no. There was a show that I saw, uh, weirdly, actually, also at the McKittrick, um, called The Strange Undoing of Prudencia Hart. <laughs> That I very much loved. What is that? What is that laugh about? Keep talking. I can't. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I I loved that show. I thought it was great. No, no, uh, the show was great. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's uh, for the listeners. It's uh, a, basically a, a kind of modern folk tale about a woman who meets the devil on a cold winter night, and it 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 takes place in a bar. So the it was in the space club car, right? Yes, it was in the club car and you walk in and it's just it's just legitimately fully a real functioning working bar and you are sitting there and you get your drinks and you're watching the show and it's this very like 
environmental where these people know that they're telling a story in a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the story is that of actors telling a story in a bar almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you, I, you, I think you're very much yourself in that because you don't have a, you know, sleep no more mask to protect you or anything. Oh, sure. But you're there and, and you're not, you know, being asked all these like deep personal details or playing like a super active role in the storytelling. Like you're not like changing how things go or anything, you're not mm-hmm. picking your own adventure, but you're tearing up snow and throwing it in at the count of three. And you're you you might like you like pull a chair out for somebody and it's you're undertaking all those actions and I was undertaking them as myself I was me I mean I was the version of me that knows that there's 60 other people in the space watching me help somebody up but I was I was not like oh I'm also, I'm the bartender of the bar. Like that wasn't a well, part of it. I was no, just you me don't really necessarily do that at, at sleep no more either. You're not like oh I'm the you know porter like <laughs> no but i do think that this is a hot take i think people at sleep no more are all all the uh spectators are playing a character but i don't know what it is because yeah. there's something about i don't the know masks. what it is i don't know what it is but there's something about the masks, the masks and the yeah. anonymity of it totally that a lot everybody... of celebrities like it because of the anonymity yeah and I think everybody is doing things um, that they would not do. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's fair to say. Yeah, that that that's they're doing them. I think the reason why people do the things they do in Sleep No More, for better or for worse, is because uh, nobody knows that it's them. I mean, I had one mm. um, interaction that I felt very dumb about where it was there was it was like a drinking game with like cards or something Uh and I didn't understand how it was supposed to work and so it was like me and two other people standing at like this bar and there was a bartender playing this game with us and like 30 people watching and I didn't understand the rules like he wanted me to hand him something I didn't know he wanted me to hand him and so I just I felt very like silly and stupid yeah uh for not being able to figure out what I was supposed to do but then after and so I was like, oh, I'm glad I can just let that die with me. The people don't need to know oh, <laughs> that, that 40 people huh. watch me do something re- like be a really stupid person and just not understand how like a simple card game works. Sure. Okay. And then after we left, people were like swapping stories. And I was like, not going to bring up that you don't know how a card game works. Let's talk about this one on one instead. Uh-huh. And my friend Sam was like, I was in this card game that's really interesting and then there's this other guy in it who like didn't even know how it was supposed to work <laughs> and, they didn't know it was and he you. had it was my best friend that i had like been there with right. and who like knew the clothes that i was wearing that day <laughs> and fully didn't think it was me at all that's funny i don't know to it i did tell him it was me uh because i thought he would be kind to me about it and he mostly was but <laughs> <laughs> that just set me off thinking like oh that's that is such freedom that I just like yeah. didn't really care that I look stupid because yeah. I know that nobody knows. People did some crazy me. shit in there. It would, it, it, yeah. People did some crazy shit in there, and I agree with you. It's the mask. The mask will do that to you. And I, I yeah, taking on something, and and it did make me think about. We do have to 
um, it's toward the end of the time that I usually have for a podcast, right? Um, so I have some like closing uh, thoughts to discuss that I, you know, so you talk about the idea that if, if they don't, you know, if, if you don't prime the audience for t- participation, it makes the audience very uncomfortable and threatened. If you don't give them clear goals and control, immediate and direct feedback of, of what's good and, and bad and balance of skills and pause for learning, you know, mm-hmm. the thing that happens is the audience is uncomfortable, threatened, uh, they don't want to be there, etc. right? Um, mm. Does that make for bad immersive theater or is that just you're doing something else to the audience? Just throwing I, a wrench at your paper. Sure. No, good. Um, I've given a lot of thought to uh, discomfort in theater in general. Because you talked about feeling uncomfortable because you didn't know how to play the card game. Isn't that kind of... A, yeah. Isn't that okay? Oh, it's a thousand percent okay. I think how... How I kind of feel about it is that I'm not... Like we said earlier, I'm not opposed to discomfort in theater. I think it's vital that you are uncomfortable at times in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm opposed to when discomfort becomes the purpose. Okay. okay. Rather than a step that you work toward and then work through. I don't think it's... I, I don't agree with ending on discomfort because i think a lot of productions especially immersive ones get stuck trying to cause that discomfort yeah when you need to have discomfort but if you get stuck trying to cause it then there's a strong chance that that's where you're going to end and i want to like give them the benefit of the doubt that like they're doing it to prove a point about something but -hmm. if you're not mindful in how you're bringing it up and addressing it then you've you've kind of missed your point because if the audience walks away being uncomfortable in that situation oftentimes they're not walking away saying oh i was uncomfortable because they made me reconsider this topic or dive into this thing that i believe that's not the discomfort they walk away being like yeah yeah they walk away saying i was uncomfortable because i was forced to see this thing or i had to participate in this activity that I would have avoided if I could have. And if you're saying I did not like going through that experience for that reason, a lot of times the defense that artists have is, well, neither did the character. That's the point. Cause they get, I think people <laughs> tend to get a little bit defensive about that. And you're like, okay, but what is that point then is just that this is a terrible thing. And so your goal is to approximate that experience for us. Right. Because that's both, uh, it feels, I don't want to say lazy, but I, I think that it's irresponsible. And I think that you can do better. And I think that, again, discomfort is very important. It's like vital. Like if, if you're not made uncomfortable by a work of theater, then it's not doing what it needs to do. Like you need to be made uncomfortable so that you can grow and change. But if it's so overwhelming and driving that that's kind of what all that's the only thing that people are walking away with uh-huh. then you've made a misstep somewhere you yeah. need to get more tools there's there's a a constructive discomfort and then there's just discomfort almost like an anxiety attack that is not necessary like um yeah 
Yeah. Uh, the reason the microphone probably picked up on me typing is I was looking up um, a show called Blackout, um, which is an immersive yeah, show. Familiar. Yeah. And that arguably is just to make you feel like shit. Like <laughs> that yeah. show is arguably just to psychologically torture you. Um, I think that uh, Darren Lynn Bowsman, my best friend, my world, I, I don't know him at all. I'm just obsessed with him. Does does discomfort in a very constructive way. Like after one day mm-hmm. die, I had to lay down and tell myself it wasn't real over and over again. And then I was like, wow, you did it. Like, <laughs> in a, I think he does constructive um, discomfort. Um, and then, you know, when you're talking about, I wish I didn't see that because I wish it didn't like look at me in that way. The story didn't look at me in that way. I thought of a show that I saw uh, called Three Fifths. And it was a um, it was a immersive show that was um, the premise was a white supremacy carnival um, where you go in and you declare your race by someone who is blind. So you can go in and they mark you white or black. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes, uh, especially with white people, they would choose to mark them as black. Um, So the audience, the audience treats you. I mean, the actors treat you that way when you walk into the white supremacy carnival. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother, <laughs> my brother, who's not a theater person, <laughs> um, went in and they marked him white. And um, so immediately you're very uncomfortable at this show the second you walk in. Um, I think that the show mm-hmm. did a lot of things well, but a lot of things in the way that it maybe wasn't constructive. But there was one mm-hmm. part where they they grabbed him. You walk in and it does look like a carnival. There's games to play and things like that. But as you walk closer, you see that all the games are really really racist um but they grabbed my brother and they said oh what a beautiful Aryan boy what like a wonderful strong Aryan boy and it's one of those things with a hammer where you hit it and it hits the thing right uh-huh <laughs> he he um it's just he it just made him so uncomfortable that's why i'm laughing he goes up he hits the thing and then the you know the bell goes off and two planks of wood come up so the this this plank of wood becomes a cross and then fake flames come up. So now it's a burning cross. Mm-hmm. And then the whole entire room turns to him and starts singing um, like a some sort of anthem that was, I believe, the Ku Klux Klan anthem. And then they put a white mm-hmm. hood on him, on my brother. Um, and in some ways, I was like, that's not constructive. But in other ways, I was like, damn, that's... <laughs> That was effective. I mean, it's what they wanted to do. It's what they wanted us to feel, and I felt extremely yeah. uncomfortable. Um, and there was well, there was a I lot of other know. other parts of the show where you could like sit down and really engage with it. Um, but yeah, it was mm-hmm. very absurd, very in your face. I think that yeah. it, it was very ineffective for my brother because he was just so. Yeah. It was effective for I feel like everybody else but my brother in that specific instance. Sure. Because he was just taken out. He was just like, I don't want to be here, you know? Yeah. And that's something to be aware of is that obviously everybody has different lines of comfort or discomfort. And I I think that's why I I also don't agree at all with people who are trying to do everything they can to not make people uncomfortable because everybody is different. I think it really does because because if if your goal is to be like we can't have anybody ever be uncomfortable then you're going to drive yourself crazy and inevitably you're going to fail because there will be some aspect you haven't thought of sure um which is why i just feel like the best 
that you can do is think about, like we said earlier, the point you're trying to make, the best way to make that point and the most responsible way to make that point. Hmm. Because I think that if you've really thought through those three questions, then you will potentially still have people who are made uncomfortable to the fact that they can't engage with anything else you were trying to say. Right. But I think your odds are way better. And I think that then at the very least, the undercurrent of your work is that you respect the people who have come to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good point. Yeah. I like that. At least you respect the people who have come to see what you're doing. Which, again, I don't ever mean to say that anybody who I feel like fails at doing this is intending to be disrespectful or intending to do anything harmful, hmm. of course. But I think it's... I think it's participatory theater is very, very tricky and I think it's I think it's really easy to miss the mark yeah yeah on it yeah I think that's a pretty good <laughs> way to end it yeah do you have uh... I like that we're ending on it's all pretty complicated well there really isn't another way to say it like that's I completely agree that that's a perfect place to end um do you have any other final thoughts or do you want to plug anything uh I don't have anything to plug. I have no. I have nothing. I have nothing to plug. Okay. I'm just doing the best that I can. Uh, <laughs> I'll just plug follow me. me follow doing me the on, best on, I can. <laughs> <laughs> let's plug me doing the best I can. Follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Young ninety seven. Um, you know, root for me. This podcast is produced by Hickory Playground, founded by Dylan Tashjian, Robert Fuller, and Jordan Maycant. Jordan is also our audio editor. Compositions are by Lucky Sarudi. Logos designed by Morgan Honeycutt. My assistant in research is John Morgan Stern, and our digital marketing specialist is Simone Elhart. Thank you so much for listening.